And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. Please be advised this episode contains themes that some listeners may find triggering and language that some may find offensive. My name is Maya Howells. I am one of 20,000 women and men who have been spiked in Britain today. But that number is just the tip of the iceberg. And that iceberg led me to start this podcast. In this episode... There's a breakthrough at the heart of the government. Brand new inquiry, this time into drink spiking. I discover what we can learn from trolling. Do you genuinely believe that I wanted to be hospitalised? And I hear from Ted, a male victim of spiking. It just feels unfair. Like It's just completely out of your control. So join me and get under the skin of one of the most insidious and common crimes in the UK today. This is Pricks. Episode 4. Ministers and misogyny. It's the 9th of December, 2021. Everyone is gearing up for Christmas, even though a new strain of coronavirus, Omicron, is threatening to spoil the festivities. But today, I'm delighted, because the government have made an announcement that they're launching an official inquiry into spiking. It's such a big step that is even being reported on the TV, on the National GB News. Home Affairs Select Committee will be holding an opening session today into its brand new inquiry, this time into drink spiking, and they'll be taking evidence from victims. Reports emerged of a new form of spiking that involves individuals being injected whilst on nights out. This is huge. When I launched I've Been Spiked, I didn't know how far the message would travel or what good it would do. But to have the government promising to look at the issue, it means there's a real chance things could change. They've said they're going to look at the amount of spiking, understand the impact, look at what the police, the nighttime industries, universities and hospitals are doing, and whether they can do more. And they'll look at the support that's available to victims and the treatment and care that's on offer. The inquiry is calling for people to write in with their experiences by the 19th of January 2022. So I immediately took to social media to spread the word. To whom it may concern, my name is Maya Howells, I'm 23 years old and from South London. In February of 2020, I had my drink spiked in a local nightclub. In October of 2021, I launched a petition for an urgent review into drink spiking in the UK which has over 8,000 signatures. I do believe that if we work together on the issue, we can make some long-lasting change to the current state of spiking in the UK. While the inquiry sounds impressive, what does it mean in reality? I wanted to understand more. Like, what kind of things would be discussed? And what kind of change could it create? Once again, I spoke to Helena Conibert, the CEO of the Alcohol Trust, who told me... 
I think the more we can talk about the prevalence and the lack of um, convictions, I think I think that the pressure then grows to really do something concrete um, as a result, which is which is what we're all hoping for. And when I spoke to Michael in the last episode about the need for a nationwide policy in bars and clubs, he said it would need to come from the government. This direction all needs to come from the Home Office because we've got 52 police forces working with different partners to create different training, different overt campaigns, different processes. And it's just surreal that we can't draw this together. So was this announcement from the government a result of all the pressure? And could it really force a change nationwide? Do the government really hold the key to tackling this issue? I got back in touch with Izzy from the TAB, whose survey, which we discussed in episode one, was submitted to the Home Affairs Committee in evidence. She thinks, if nothing else, the inquiry will act as a deterrent to anyone thinking about spiking someone else. This is an issue on that's on the national agenda now and people people do care and people are, you know, trying to look into it and trying to make change. And I think as well to show perpetrators, like, you can't just do this and think, like, oh, I can do it because I'll get away with it. But I think the inquiry really shows that you know, this is something that we care about, this is something that will be investigated, this is something that you could get caught doing and you, you know, you, you can get held to account for. Not to be too jargony, but the main focuses of the inquiry are exploring new protocols and procedures across the nighttime industry and looking at the police response to spiking victims. New rules to make us safer. I'm not sure if that tackles the wider issue of why it's happening in the first place. When I spoke to Charlotte Proudman, a lawyer specialising in violence against women, she was equally sceptical about the real impact of new rules and regulations. I don't think we're ever really going to see an enormous sea change because all we're doing is putting a plaster over some of these issues as as if they're discrete rather than part of a wider issue and a wider picture of violence against women and girls. And that, I think, has to be the crux of the problem, doesn't it? Charlotte is saying that, in her eyes, making changes within the police or in bars and clubs won't make any difference. So what will? What is really at the crux of this problem? What do we need to tackle? To make sense of that, I've been back over dozens of the stories sent to the campaign. I've looked for clues, patterns, anything which could point me to the underlying reasons why this is happening. And I spoke to dozens of victims firsthand. People like Sharon Gafka, who you'll have heard from in episode two. She was a Love Island contestant on series seven, as well as a civil servant and female rights activist. And she's been talking openly about her own experiences with spiking, which she thinks has happened to her around six times. On the first occasion... I was in a club. Um, I was perfectly fine one minute. One of my friends had overdrank and fell on the floor. So I left my drink on the side, picked her up, put her in a chair, and then went back to pick up my drink. So I'd left it unattended. Um, but, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, it wasn't a very high dosage or whatever so I wasn't unconscious I was just very ill the next day and Sharon's next experience of spiking was even more dramatic 
the more recent and shocking experience for me was the experience that I've been more vocal about, which happened to me just after the first lockdown um, in 2020. That was, you know, complete broad daylight by a complete stranger. My friends and I were kind of like reuniting after spending months apart during lockdown and celebrating my friend's birthday. Um, you know, it pretty much I describe it from like zero to a hundred because one minute I was perfectly fine having I'm pretty sure I had some like chicken salad and some squid or something and then all of a sudden being carted away in an ambulance um with no memory of what happened to me. Sharon has been using her profile to raise awareness and she's collected over a thousand testimonies which have been submitted in evidence to the Home Affairs Committee. I've had a very wide range of ages and demographics reach out to me. So it's not like one particular community where it's more prevalent, but um, the different types of spiking is in different, you can see in different demographics. For example, like the male testimonies I've tended to receive tend to focus on their friends putting a recreational drug in their drink because they think it's a joke. Whereas with women, it tends to be more that there is there's an aim to cause physical harm to somebody, um, whether it's sexually or violently. The youngest victim I had reach out to me was, was pretty much 14 years old. And some of the responses to her campaign have been pretty disturbing. Because I have like this online platform, I'm leaving myself more vulnerable to trolls and those kinds of messages that I didn't want. Um, you know, that I think the what, one thing that really like blew up is when I did that um, little interview with GMB. The moment I walked off the set, my phone literally went, was like explosive. I had to turn off all of my notifications for every social media app that I owned. Most of the trolling or nasty messages I've received off the back of sharing my story are from men generally saying I, I think the worst one I had was somebody basically calling me a slapper um saying I deserved it saying I asked for it saying that um I was probably wearing next to nothing um I was probably walking around begging for man to put something in my drink to physically hurt me because then it makes me feel more desirable because I wasn't desirable on the show Sharon couldn't believe what she was reading are you really that ignorant? Do you genuinely believe that I wanted to be hospitalised and drugged and cause physical harm to myself against my will for the sake of being deemed attractive to a man? You know, it's got nothing to do with what I was wearing, but if you were there, I was wearing a pair of jeans, a jumper, and I was in a restaurant in the middle of the day. What else do you want me to do? Just not go out ever? And it's, it's, do you know what? They tend to be that kind of trend that I was asking for it that it's my fault in some way, shape or form. I probably led him on and whatever. And it's just, it's hard to read. Sharon's experience of trolling, of men commenting and passing judgment, throwing insults and spreading hate, I've had that too. Since starting I've Been Spiked, as well as a hugely positive response, I've received a massive amount of trolling. Why is it always the ugly girls who say they've been spiked? Do you just want attention? You're probably just saying this because you had a one night stand and don't want to admit it. Maybe you're being a prick tease and you got what was coming to you. Is this it? Is this what these men really think? Perhaps this attitude is the crux of the issue that Charlotte was referring to. A deeper issue that rules and regulations simply can't prevent. 
The public consensus is to tune out and disregard the nasty little keyboard warriors, though that's easier said than done. But rather than dismissing what these idiots are saying, let's examine it a little more closely. Maybe it can teach us something. Maybe the trolling and the spiking go hand in hand for a reason. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. So what does psychologist Emma Kenny make of trolling like this? Well, she thinks it's actually a symptom of a broader sickness, one which goes to the heart of the rise in spiking, and that is the epidemic of violence against women. You'll have heard all the news reports which detail tragic, heartbreaking, but seemingly isolated events. But listen collectively, and this press coverage speaks to just how frequently these horrors happen. On Wednesday evening, Detectives investigating the disappearance of Sarah Everard discovered a body secreted in Woodland in Kent. I can now confirm that it is the body of Sarah Everard. The number of convictions for rape has fallen to a 10-year low. That's despite a record number of complaints. Cases of domestic abuse have surged in lockdown and calls to domestic abuse helplines rocketed. The Irish president, Michael Higgins, has led tributes to the teacher, Ashling Murphy, who was killed earlier this week. The rise in needle spiking too. Isn't that just a new form of violence against women? If the motive is to cause this sense of terror, in particular in young women, that to me is born of sheer misogyny. That's where that comes from. That's Lisa Townsend. She's the police and crime commissioner for Surrey. She's also a spiking victim. And, refreshingly, she doesn't shy away from the M-word. Misogyny. If your aim as somebody who is committing this crime, and it is crime, it's an assault, is to strike fear into these women and make them feel scared of going out, making them feel scared of going to bars and clubs, that's just straightforward misogyny. It comes from a place of misogyny. And that I find really quite chilling. So here lies the crux of it all. Misogyny is like a weed in your garden that refuses to go away. Tackle one strain and another pops up in its place. And psychologist Emma believes that acts of misogyny, from trolls sending threats of rape on the web, to the rise in domestic violence, to increased incidents of needle spiking, is so persistent at the moment because society is going through a period of change. I think for men in the past 30 years, it's been very confusing, understandably, the level playing field at work is far more equal. Women are meeting themselves as contenders in every element. Women can have babies. We are creators. We are incredibly powerful in that way. I think we underestimate the impact that men see about the fact that we can do that stuff. We're often the people who keep the home in certain scenarios. We're often the people who bring our children up more than the men. That's a powerful position to be in. It's, we're more than equal in those situations. So is this a case of deeply ingrained and deeply misaligned expectations? Bear with me here. Essentially, society subjects men to a barrage of messages which places them as masters and kings of their own lives. They are the ones in charge. They are the ones who make up the rules. 
And these messages come from film, like this shocker from American Pie. There's going to be Eastern European chick naked in your house. You're not going to do anything about that? What am I going to do, huh? Broadcast her over the internet? You can do that? No, I cannot do that to her. Man, if you don't have the guts to photograph a naked chick in your house, how the hell are you ever going to sleep with one? We hear men's take of consent in music like Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines. And politicians aren't exempt either. Here's Donald Trump with his own take on how we should treat women. Captured by Access Hollywood on NBC. Hey, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. These messages are everywhere. In television ads, in porn. They've been reinforced at work, at home, at school, at uni, and by lad culture. I mean... It was less than 10 years ago that Zoo and Nuts magazine were talking about women as pieces of meat. But thankfully, society is making headway. These presentations of women are becoming outdated, reviled even. Women are no longer, in theory at least, seen as merely consumable, amenable objects. And barrister Charlotte Proudman believes it's this gear shift which accounts for the rise in the most outwardly misogynistic subculture of all incels. The incel movement, interesting, very dangerous as well. I wonder if it's become a tool for them uh, to be able to retaliate towards women who they feel are withholding sex from them, or they feel have um, somehow turned them down, or that they feel that women are behaving in, in such a way as to prevent them from being able to access their power in society, the kind of power that was promised to them. Uh, And then they feel that it's been run by so-called feminists. And one way of retaliating against that is through kind of abusive tactics um, towards women generally. Um, So I wonder whether spiking is part of that attitude that men hold kind of deeply misogynistic and sexist attitudes towards women um, and this kind of really burning hatred that they might have for a variety of different reasons and one way of being able to show that and lash out is through these acts of what they might see as microaggressions but they're really vicious assaults on women by spiking them indiscriminately. Psychologist Emma Kenny echoed Charlotte's thoughts going even further I think it's terrorism I think it's radicalized young men who are being told to ingest misogyny and to believe that women are daring to say no. Their whole premise is they believe that women are here to serve men. But then Emma said something which took me completely by surprise. So if I'm seeing young men struggling, it's not okay for us to just go, well, they need to do better. No, that's not true. We need to do better. Society has to acknowledge that as well. What does she mean about young men struggling? Why on earth shouldn't we be demanding them to do better? Emma explained. There is a negative in my view around the way that we treat each other in our society. And I think that until we challenge those issues and create a more harmonious community, we're going to see these kind of things happen again and again. There's got to be these other people who aren't necessarily spiking girls, but might not think there's any issue with it. So young men, 
may think that it's it's wrong, but it's no big deal. And I think we need to challenge what's going on in young men and the way that they feel about the world, because I think we're missing things that we need to hear from them as well. So I think there's a whole overhaul required of how we understand our youth and how we understand the developing youth into young adults and onwards so that we kind of figure it out. And as Charlotte says, that overhaul needs to start from the grassroots up. Education has to start very young. I mean, we've heard a lot in the news about rape culture within schools, even as young as a primary school, for goodness sake. And then lack of understanding about consent and healthy, intimate relationships, respect and mutuality. And if people are having healthy sexual relationships, whether, you know, as teenagers or as young adults and adolescents, then surely there'll be less cause for the need to spike um, women's drinks because they'll want to have a relationship or an intimacy with someone that is consenting to that and will understand what consent actually means in practice. For others, there may be an awareness that men could do more, but a lack of understanding how. Lisa Townsend is the Police and Crime Commissioner for Surrey Police, and she's also a victim of spiking. From her position, she's seen the problem firsthand and been a part of wider conversations about how society needs to change. Wherever we see this kind of behaviour, you know, we call it out. Some of the most interesting conversations I've had around this issue are with male friends and male colleagues. I think they they often feel quite helpless in the preventing violence against women and girls space. And, you know, my husband and, and, and male colleagues and friends have said, well, what can I do? And my answer is always the same, which is whenever you hear something, you know, whether it's a friend or another colleague or you hear somebody saying something and it's not acceptable that you say it, you call it out. You say that's not okay. That's not acceptable. Um, If you hear people joking about spiking, you make it clear that it's not a joke, it's not funny, it's a serious assault. You know, it's, it's absolutely true with the sort of growing, arguably growing in cell culture, which is that we, we treat it for what it is, which is a, you know, a, a, an ideology um, that, you know, when taken to its extreme results in a terrorist act. It is men's responsibility to tackle this, and our responsibility to encourage that to happen. If men call this behaviour out, make it uncomfortable, and create a world in which it's frowned upon in their circles, maybe, maybe that will do more good. It's about eradicating the growth of the darker side of lad culture, something which Izzy from the tab had told me all about that laddish culture of, you know, this will be a laugh. This, you know, they're in these big groups on a social night and there is something in that dynamic that is allowing spiking to happen. And there is a lot of boys and men that are standing by and know it's happening and letting it happen. I think that is just as bad because if you are knowingly letting a girl or anyone be put in that position of being spiked, then like I think you know you need to take a long hard look at yourself because it's not funny and it's not make doesn't make a good night out and it doesn't you know make you part of the group it just makes you sort of you know aiding somebody's traumatic experience as much as it's we're trying to deter people from spiking we're also trying to make anyone that's watching someone being spiked or knows about being some someone being spiked to speak up and speak out against it these are huge complex issues And I want to make it clear that when we're talking about men and misogyny here, 
We're speaking in the broadest possible terms. We of course acknowledge that not all men are carrying needles. Not all men are incels. Not all men have subconsciously hated women since Zoo magazine stopped being published. But even so, the male listeners of this podcast need to be a part of the conversation. Not just to help create a society that we all want to live in, but because men can be victims of spiking too. My name's Ted Hurd White. I'm 22. I'm a university student at the University of Derby. I study fashion and fashion marketing. In October of 2021, Ted was spiked. It was on a Saturday evening uh, and I usually go out with uh, some of my friends just into into town. I only live, uh, you know, just on the outside of the city centre. So we were just going out on a usual Saturday night. We've had a couple of drinks at mine. Headed into town as usual. And it, we went to um, we went to a club somewhere we'd been regularly for four years. Um, so somewhere we felt pretty comfortable in. I'd say we probably arrived at the club between 12 and half past 12. I've gone and bought the first round and I can remember exactly what I got. And it was two vodka oranges. And the next thing I remember, I was like, I just have like a brief flash of this memory of banging on my front door at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. Next thing, um, I've woken up at like 4pm on that Sunday afternoon. No recollection of the night before. But the loss of time wasn't the only indication that Ted's night had gone horribly wrong. I'd woken up and, and rolled out of bed and my bed was covered in blood and I was covered in blood. The palm of my hand was like completely ripped off. I had like no wallet, no keys, anything. I don't know where I was or who I was with or what was going on for four hours. Ted knew instinctively this was nothing to do with the vodka oranges. I'm not like a massive drinker, I'm not a massive casual drinker. But even even on like the heaviest nights, if you will, nowhere near as bad. Ted was encouraged by his housemates and his family to ring the police. He remembers they were engaged and supportive and they advised him to go to the doctor as soon as he could. They told me to get onto my GP and get a blood test. So I got onto my GP and then they said, oh, we can't do it. And then they passed me off to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and they said they wouldn't do it. I spent the whole day running around trying to get one sorted and I didn't really... They kind of make you feel like you're just wasting their time, which really frustrated me. So in the end, I, I couldn't get anything at the hospital sorted. My cuts were pretty bad and they didn't want to know really. So I, I came home and just clean myself up and I was wearing like bandages over my hand for like days while everything healed. I want to just unpack a couple of things here. Things I've got no way of verifying, but are worth talking about. I find it interesting that Ted's experience with the police was so positive when so many women I know report that they've been spiked and find the complete opposite. And on the flip side, would the hospital have taken Ted, who presented with significant injuries, more seriously if he'd been a woman? I'll leave that thought with you. In the meantime, what does Ted think happened to him on that night? We were kind of playing through the possibility that, and the police the police thought it, it could have happened as well, that I'd been spiked with the intention of being mugged or jumped. Obviously, I have no 
no memory at all and four hours is a long time um so anything could have happened but i don't know i suppose it's um given me some solace kind of just putting it down to that i asked ted how the spiking has affected him and you can hear the emotion in his voice when he answers definitely in the first few days it did kind of it kind of knocked me a bit um just just thinking how how cautious i am usually and then that happens um and i don't know it, it just i felt quite i was upset of course and um it just feels unfair like it's just completely out of your control and it's just it just feels unfair that's the one word that i could just sum it up with it absolutely is unfair it's unfair that it happened to ted it's unfair that it happened to me It's unfair that it happens full stop, and unfair that usually no one gets held to account. As well as his experience as a victim, me and Ted talked about the importance of men being part of the spiking conversation. Before I had like spoken about it, I hadn't heard of like a single case of of it happening to to any guys. I was like, okay, maybe it maybe it does happen like more than more than you think, but I'm not sure maybe just guys don't want to talk about it you know the whole like man up and and men's mental health thing and not not wanting to share their feelings i thought it was really important to bring some light to the fact that it really can just happen to anyone i think it's everyone's everyone's responsibility to to speak up about an issue so profound but everyone has the right to to go out on a night out and feel completely safe in the environment they're in Like, no one should have that taken away from them. So this is clearly not a case of just getting one prick with a needle off the streets. It's about challenging misogynistic practices which persist in Britain today. And it's about us all working together to eradicate violent attitudes and practices against women in all its forms. And that, to me, feels like a tall order for the Home Affairs Committee to tackle. Watch this space. Next time, on Pricks. We look at the sharp consequences of spiking for both victim and perpetrator. If you've been affected by spiking or the issues discussed in this podcast, there's a list of resources on the I've Been Spiked Instagram page. Pricks is a podcast production by What's The Story Sounds. The series is produced and presented by me, Maya Howells, in association with I've Been Spiked. Sound design by Daryl Brown and our executive producer is Sophie Ellis.